Welcome to this second episode in a new mini-series dedicated to the history of the Sandy Row area in South Belfast. This series is brought to you in collaboration with Belfast South Community Resources and also with the support of the South Belfast Urban Village Initiative. In the context of the recent scenes of violence in Belfast, including in Sandy Row, I thought it might be worth looking back at some of the more notorious riots in the city's history. Some of the worst rioting that Belfast has ever witnessed occurred in the second half of the 1800s. Indeed, the most violent districts of Belfast in this period were the Pound area, populated by Catholics, and the Sandy Row area, populated by Protestants. And therefore, when I saw the footage recently of trouble in the Sandy Row area in connection with loyalist protests, my interest was piqued and my mind was cast back to the somewhat darker episodes of the 19th century. From the 1850s, Sandy Row developed into a hotbed of religious Protestantism, political unionism and cultural orangism. The events and factors which contributed to this developing sense of identity were at odds with those in neighbouring Catholic communities and in many ways created a frontier which could explode into violence. One of those factors was the Evangelical Protestant Revival of 1859, which swept across Ulster, and was also felt in Belfast, particularly among working-class communities such as Sandy Row, where, for two months, a religious mania consumed the area. There were theatrical born-again conversions, church services were overflowing, and the pubs were empty. The sound of the gospel filled the air. The Catholic Church was deeply concerned by the effects of the evangelical revival and took measures to prevent Catholics from succumbing to a conversion or being smitten, as it was referred to. Priests made personal visits to converts in order to try and convince them to remain Catholic. Meanwhile, Catholic managers in some of the Belfast mills strictly discouraged revivalist activity in the workplace and even dismissed workers who were found to be reading the scripture. The revival created a new source of tension between the churches, which filtered down to its people. Several Protestant churches were built in the years that followed the Evangelical Protestant Revival. For example, Sandy Row Presbyterian Church on Great Victoria Street, which was built in January 1861, and the primitive Wesleyan Church, which was established in Mill Lane off Sandy Row in 1860. The increase in church activity in the area also led to an increase in the number of schools. By 1868, for example, there were eight schools in the Sandy Road district which were under the management of Protestant churches. Many of the ministers in the Sandy Road area were also committed members of the Orange Order, meaning that this new wave of evangelical Protestantism, which was sweeping the area, was often highly critical of the Catholic Church and its teachings. The Orange Order itself also dramatically increased in popularity and in size during this period. My intention is to devote an upcoming episode of the podcast to Sandy Row Orangism, but for now, it's important to point out the role of the Orange Order as one of the key factors in the development of a Protestant and Unionist ethos in Sandy Row. Each year, their activities culminated in the annual 12th of July which back then was something more akin to a festival that the whole community could contribute to, whether it be collecting money for the Orange Arch, 
the physical construction of the arch, or by participating in one of the many bands and lodges from the area. In 1868, the same year that a foundation stone ceremony was held for Sandy Row Orange Hall, the famous William Johnson of Ballykilbeg stood as a Protestant workers' candidate in the parliamentary elections of that year. Johnson had famously taken a stand against the Party Processions Act by organising a 12th of July parade in 1867 which resulted in him spending several weeks in prison. The Belfast Protestant Working Men's Association, who Johnson ran for in Belfast, had widespread support in Sandy Row. The extension of the franchise meant that more people in this election had an opportunity to participate, and in this case, it offered them a chance to move away from traditional conservatives who didn't always represent their worldview. Indeed, Johnson fought the campaign against conservative candidates who had supported the enforcement of the Party Processions Act which Johnson was ardently opposed to. Johnson's campaign was ultimately successful, and despite his fierce rhetoric, which was often anti-Catholic, he was said to have been responsible for improved community relations in the area between Catholics and Protestants. However, this positive work was undone in 1872, when fresh riots broke out. By 1886 then, the issue of Irish Home Rule was on the agenda, and Sandy Row, as with other areas, responded by demonstrating its opposition to the bill. Thus, between 1850 and 1886, as Catherine Hurst has pointed out, the Protestant Unionist character of Sandy Row was consolidated. The religious revival was a phenomenon experienced by the Sandy Row district as a whole and not experienced by nearby Catholic communities. The widening of the franchise in 1867 and the election of William Johnson demonstrated Sandy Row's capacity for independent political action when required. And then, of course, in 1886, these attributes were combined to good effect in their political and religious opposition to the Home Rule Bill. The worst riots in this area took place in 1886, in 1864 and in 1857. Catherine Hurst has written that between 1851 and 1886, there were 18 instances of serious violence in and around the 12th of July period. The serious riots of 1857 was one such episode. On the 12th of July that year, Orange men and their partners paraded to Christchurch to attend a special sermon by the Reverend Dr Thomas Drew. They did so minus their orange sashes, because to have worn them would have constituted an illegal parade under the Party Processions Act. In a firebrand sermon, Drew emphasised the historic persecution of Protestants by the Catholic Church and he suggested to the congregation that such persecution was still being practised today. Meanwhile, outside the church, a large crowd of Catholics from the pound had gathered in opposition to the orange men inside. A man by the name of Lochry, who was wearing an orange lily, found himself in the midst of the hostile crowd. In fact, he turned out to be a drunken Catholic who was almost killed by the crowd before the police managed to rescue him. The remainder of the day passed off largely peacefully. However, tensions did grow over the 13th of July and by the 14th, large crowds in both the Pound and in Sandy Row were witnessed making frantic preparations for battle. The genie eventually emerged from the bottle when shots were fired and houses attacked, thus commencing street violence which lasted for almost a week. Between the 17th and the 19th of July, 
The residents of Albert Crescent were unable to leave their houses due to the persistent nature of the gunfire. In Sandy Row, a half-built house had been commandeered and a platform of bricks built inside for men to stand on and fire into Albert Crescent. The men of the pound also had a similar setup. The riots of 1857 were characterised by tit-for-tat house attacks and evictions. When Protestants wrecked Catholic houses in Mary Street, for example, the Catholic crowd hit back by destroying the Protestant homes in Lemon Street. Indeed, many Catholics were evicted from the Sandy Row area during this period, and similarly, many Protestants were evicted from the Pound. The rioting eventually subsided when reinforcements arrived for the police and the military. However, tensions erupted again only a matter of weeks later, after a fallout over street preaching. A handful of Protestant clergymen, including the famous Roaring Hugh Hanna, announced their intentions to preach sermons at the Custom House Steps in Belfast. In response, Catholics were planning to mobilise opposition to the preachers. In September, Catholics gathered at the Custom House Steps to oppose the Reverend Hannah, which ultimately led to violent clashes and the resumption of serious rioting once again at the Sandy Row interface. Assaults, house wrecking and workplace intimidation resumed on both sides before the situation eventually calmed at the end of September that year. 1864 brought the next episode of serious violence in this area. At dawn, on Tuesday the 16th of August 1864, angry crowds were already gathering at the street corners in Sandy Row, the Shankill and the Pound. By 5am, a battle was raging in Brown Square where seven people were injured by gunfire, including one fatality. At Great Victoria Street Station, the first train of the day from Dublin was attacked as the passengers alighted. As the police made their way into Durham Street to try and stem the violence, they encountered the Sandy Row crowd on their way to attack the pound. Police were attacked with cobblestones and gunfire in what seems to have been a ferocious assault. When the police responded with a volley of shots, a man named John McConnell was felled, wounded in the skull and subsequently died in the nearby Union Workhouse Hospital on the Lisburn Road. In the opinion of the historian Frankfurt Moore, the riots which had engulfed Belfast for eight consecutive days were caused by, quote, the importation the previous year of some hundreds, perhaps thousands of navvies to build a new dock, and it was found out that a large proportion of these men were Roman Catholics. The balance of the fighting power among the belligerent classes was thereby disturbed. So, when the illegal walking of the Protestants on the 12th of July was interfered with by the opposite party, the result was a series of encounters in many of the streets. It was, however, only when the Romanists tried to organise a party procession of their own, later that the town was given over to civil war. End of quote. In more peaceful circumstances, there were just 65 officers of the Royal Irish Constabulary stationed in Belfast, along with 160 officers of the town police. However, reinforcements of wagons, constabulary, infantry and field guns were sent from Dublin Castle on Monday the 15th of August, after Catholic navvies had rampaged through the centre of Belfast and made a savage attack on Brown Square National School. On Wednesday the 17th, Protestant shipwrights made an attack on Catholic navvies at the docks. One was killed and many were wounded.
The funeral of John McConnell was due to be on Thursday the 18th of August and the day began calmly enough. The Mayor of Belfast, John Little, cut short a holiday in Harrogate to return that morning in an effort to ensure that loyalists would not turn the McConnell funeral into a show of strength. It was expected that the funeral procession would leave from Sandy Row and make its way to Knock Burial Ground by the direct route along Hard Street, May Street, across Queen's Bridge and through Ballymacarrot. However, the organisers were preparing to take the procession past the Pound and Hercules Street in the sort of provocative manner that the mayor was so keen to avoid. Despite military advice to ban the procession, the local magistrate, William Lyons, JP, ignored the advice and decided to press ahead with the plans. The hearse set off from Sandy Row shortly after 3pm, followed by over 5,000 men, marching four and six abreast. Lyons accompanied the funeral as it moved off. However, he was caught unaware when the procession turned into Wellington Place and headed towards Donegal Place. There was a brief standoff outside the White Linen Hall, now the site of Belfast City Hall, of course, as police attempted to encourage the hearse to continue on to Chichester Street, it was to no avail. And as the procession turned into Donegal Place, they were greeted by a roar of approval from loyalists who had gathered, many of them openly brandishing arms. Meanwhile, as it became clear what was happening, armed Catholics gathered at Hercules Street and as the funeral procession got closer, the Northern Whig reported that gunshots rang out, prompting volley upon volley of shots. The Belfast newsletter also described the incident, quote, When the funeral procession reached the head of Donegal Place, a mob of butchers and navvies armed with pistols, cleavers and other formidable weapons had turned out of Hercules Place into Castle Place. They fired a shot, then another, and then they cheered, apparently by way of challenge of a fight. At the same time, two men advanced up the street and fired again towards the cortege, which kept on its steady, solemn pace. End of quote. When the Queen's hussars arrived on the scene, they were greeted by loud cheers from the funeral party, who waved orange handkerchiefs in approval. At the same time, a man, said to be a relative of the deceased John McConnell, broke ranks with a large rifled pistol, which he fired rapidly and continuously in the direction of Hercules Place. Shots were also fired into the home of Bernard Hughes, the bakery owner and a leading Catholic layman in Belfast. Windows were broken, a police officer's hat was shot off and several men were wounded, though somehow nobody was killed. Eventually, the Queen's Hussars ushered the funeral procession along High Street and across Queen's Bridge into Ballymacarrot. After the funeral, the procession returned from Knock via Chichester Street and they jeered the magistrate William Lyons, who was stood observing from outside the White Linen Hall. That evening, around a hundred homes were attacked in Stanhope Street and its vicinity. A Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Isaac Nelson, recalled that... The mobs in my neighbourhood not only hunted poor Roman Catholic neighbours out of their houses, but I had to go and beseech them to grant so many hours to these poor people to take their furniture out. I could have sat down and wept when a poor little girl came with a pet canary bird in a cage. When the poor people had been driven from their houses, the children in one direction and the father and mother in another. By the Thursday night, there were almost 2,000 police officers 
of various descriptions on duty in Belfast, as well as troops from the 4th Hussars and a half a battery of artillery. This bolstered force, combined with bad weather actually, brought the 1864 riots to a close. The riots of 1886 on the other hand, and according to Catherine Hurst, were the worst of the 19th century. Lasting from June to September, this round of violence saw 32 deaths, almost 400 injured and countless expulsions from homes and jobs. The context for the 1886 riots was the emergence of the first of three Home Rule Bills. As everyone knows, the bill was defeated in the House of Commons, but this has often overshadowed the severity of the unrest in Belfast and the extent of Unionism's mobilisation against the bill. Therefore, these riots were different in nature to those of 1864 and 1857. This time, it was primarily a battle between Protestants and the police, with Catholics only on the periphery. It was an incident at the shipyard which precipitated the violence on this occasion. During a fight between a Catholic and a Protestant dock labourer, the Catholic is reported to have said that none of your sort, i.e. Protestants, would get work after home rule becomes reality. This prompted a mob of Protestants to launch a vicious attack on Catholic navvies, many of whom took to the water in a bid to avoid being attacked. In the process, 17-year-old James Curran drowned on Friday the 4th of June. The funeral of young Curran was held on Sunday the 6th of June and 10,000 people had gathered in Ballymacarrat to take part in the procession to Milltown Cemetery in West Belfast. As the procession snaked its way through the centre of Belfast, the number of mourners swelled to somewhere in the region of 20,000 people. Then, as the funeral passed close to the Shankill Road, a pistol was fired from among the mourners in some sort of act of bravado. However, because of this, the rest of the mourners believed that they were under attack and a stampede ensued which caused running battles in nearby areas. The Belfast Telegraph reported that many Protestant homes were attacked and that young men from Sandy Row were chased through local fields. In the two days that followed, most of the violence played out on the Shankill Road, where Protestants clashed with police. It's no coincidence that as these riots reached their peak, the Home Rule Bill was making its way through the Houses of Parliament. On Tuesday the 8th of June, news trickled through to Belfast that the bill had been defeated in emphatic fashion. It was reported that from early morning, groups of people congregated on street corners and in Sandy Row, there were scenes of great excitement caused by the news of the result. That night, there were disturbances across the town of Belfast on what was described as an alarming scale. One of the few quiet areas, however, was Sandy Row, which held a torch-lit procession accompanied by local bands. However, disturbances of a very serious nature did take place in nearby Durham Street involving rival factions from Sandy Row and the Pound. It was during this disturbance that District Inspector Stritch was shot and had to be taken to a medical hall in Mill Street for treatment. Among the dozens of civilians taken to hospital with injuries was a woman called May Robinson from Sandy Row who suffered a head injury caused by a stone. After a few days the rioting subsided and Belfast was reasonably quiet again until July. 
On the 7th of July there was a resumption, this time in Ballymacarrat, and by the 8th of July the violence had spread to other parts of the town. 250 soldiers from the Northumberland Fusiliers and 50 cavalry were quickly mobilised and made their way to the Falls Road where the worst of the fighting was evident. A smaller detachment of Fusiliers was sent towards Sandy Row after a crowd of 200 Protestants made their way along Willow Street towards Albert Crescent where they attacked police who in return charged the crowd with fixed bayonets. These scenes continued until the 16th of July when eventually the rioting subsided once again although only for a couple of weeks before it flared up again at the end of July. In one incident Protestant female mill workers from Sandy Row were attacked as they made their way home from work and in another incident at Tealian Mill in Sandy Row a Catholic worker named May Beatson was beaten by a gang as she made her way home to Slate Street off the Culling Tree Road. Beatson was subsequently taken to the Mater Hospital, where she was found to have sustained a broken spine. The violence increased in ferocity over the weekend of the 6th to the 8th of August. Six people were shot dead, many more were wounded, as well as countless houses wrecked and the arrival of even more military reinforcements. The police did manage to get some of the rioters before the courts. Robert Little of Gaffigan Street on Sandy Row, for example, was sentenced to six months in prison for stoning police in Bankmore Street over that fateful weekend in early August. The sergeant stated that Little had single-handedly started a riot that lasted for two hours in an area which is normally peaceable. In the days that followed, there were yet more disturbances resulting in three more deaths caused by gunfire. By this point, it appeared that Protestants were in a continual state of conflict with the police. The people of Sandy Row and the Shankill were convinced that the constabulary had been sent to Belfast from the south of Ireland to extinguish their opposition to Home Rule. Indeed, one magistrate who was sent to Belfast from Louth, Henry Keogh, told the Riot Commission later in that year that, quote, This was not, in my view, an ordinary riot. It was more in the nature of an insurrectionary movement. There was no opposing mob. It was only against the forces of the state that the crowd were opposed. End of quote. Consequently, there were steps taken to try and resolve the matter. The Reverend Cain, for example, chaired a meeting of Sandy Row residents who vowed not to allow the constabulary into Sandy Row. They argued that peace would never be established until the police were stripped of their firearms, which they had made such cowardly use of, an interesting argument which was topical until very recently. A similar meeting was held by workers employed in the Sandy Row area who wished to, quote, take into consideration the action of the police in shooting down the public on the occasion of the recent riots. The actions of the police were widely condemned during the meeting and hope was expressed that the riots might subside in the near future. It was agreed that contact with the police should be avoided as far as possible and that so-called street committees would be formed to patrol the streets of Sandy Row and perform policing duties in the absence of the constabulary. Gradually though, the police were able to resume patrols in areas such as Sandy Row and the Shankill as Belfast returned to something that resembled normality. For others, normality was further away 
A Sandy Row relief fund was set up for the purposes of collecting funds to aid those who had suffered as a result of the recent violence. A committee to that effect was formed during a public meeting in Sandy Row Orange Hall on the 7th of September 1886. At the meeting, Robert Graham assumed the position of chairman and he said at the outset that the purpose of the relief fund was for the people of Sandy Row to provide assistance to other districts in Belfast. The police were held responsible by Graham for depriving many Belfast wives of their breadwinners, with the consequence that many would be left with no option but to seek refuge in the workhouse. The absence of the constabulary had ensured that Sandy Row was more peaceable during the latter phases of riots, which afforded them the luxury of offering such philanthropy to the rest of Belfast. Robert Graham finished his address to those in attendance by saying that they now had an opportunity to show love and charity to those who were plunged into the deepest distress before imploring them to offer their hearty support to the cause at hand. Also at the meeting was Edward de Cobain, MP, who proposed a resolution which, amongst other things, noted that, quote, We hereby express our heartfelt sympathy with the sufferers of the recent riots in Belfast and pledge ourselves to aid the widows and the orphans and other relatives to the best of our ability. Ultimately, though, it's not clear how much money was raised by the Sandy Row Relief Fund, as they don't appear to have been mentioned again in the local press. By way of conclusion then, it's clear that the movement of people from the countryside to the narrow working class streets of Belfast in the middle of the 19th century gave new impetus to existing political and religious fears and rivalries. Such fears and rivalries played out with deadly consequences in the main Protestant and Catholic enclaves such as Sandy Row and The Pound, described by Frankfurt Moore as the seismic area of the city, that part in which streaks of disagreement lie in parallel lines. There were also riots in Londonderry, Portadown and Lurgan during this time, but these were minor in comparison to what was going on in the rapidly expanding town of Belfast. Jonathan Barden argues that the growing sectarian violence in the second half of the 19th century reflected the success of Belfast's linen mills and factories and of the engineering works and shipyards, the population that they drew in from the countryside was not only volatile and unstable, but also densely concentrated and very large. In many ways, it was the perfect storm. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back later in June with an episode uh, on the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament in 1921 with a particular focus on the King's visit. In the meantime, please check out the previous episodes of the podcast and if you can, Take 30 seconds to share this podcast on your social media or share the link directly with someone who isn't on social media. It's really important that you guys help me to spread the word about the podcast because I'm certain that there are many people out there who would love these episodes but just aren't aware of how to access them. So until next time, stay safe.